0: Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of Historical Fiction. My name is Alice Proctor, I'm an art historian and writer, and on this episode we watched a ridiculously 2000s TV series called Lost in Austin. The show is about the world of Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, uh, how that collides with kind of modern imaginations of the novel, and on this episode we talked about the time travel genre, the Austen romance industry, and all sorts of fun things. My guest for this episode was Dr. Lizzie Rogers, who is a Austen fan as well as a historian of country houses and collecting, and was just the absolute perfect person to talk to you for this show. As always, Historical Friction is made possible by the support of a couple of listeners on Patreon, If you can back the show, that is incredibly helpful and enables me to continue to make episodes and that sort of thing. If you can't, no worries, thank you for listening. And if you wanna help out without giving financial support, leaving ratings and reviews wherever you get your podcasts and recommending the show to a friend is really the best that you can possibly do. Thank you so much and I hope you enjoyed the episode. Hi Lizzie, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Alice. I'm so glad to be here. Could you introduce yourself and tell people a bit about who you are and what you do, please? Of course. Um, So I'm Dr. Lizzie Rogers. Um, I just finished a couple of months ago my PhD at the University of Hull. Congratulations. Um, My special... Thank you. Very glad to be done, (laughs) although scary to be out in the world again. Um, So my specialism is on 18th century women and the country house, uh, specifically looking at collecting, learning, curiosity, enlightenment. Um, I love all those uh, things. I think they're really interesting. Um, As a little adjacent thing, I do have a huge interest in Jane Austen and what her novels can tell us about country houses, women in the early Mm. 19th century. Um, Yes, a great source material that I think my supervisors were uh, always seeing me slip in as I was writing my thesis. But um, it's one of my wider interests, especially with museums and art and kind of public perception of the 18th century, particularly on screen um, and dramatic retellings of it. Right, absolutely. And that's exactly why I thought of you as the perfect person to do this episode with. Uh, Thank you. We watched Lost in Austin, which is a 2008 ITV series about a character who falls into the world of Pride and Prejudice and everything that happens sort of after that point so I thought you would be an amazing person to talk to for this because of the way that this show is really about imagining a kind of modern interaction with this Austen source material and and the ways that that is adapted and filtered through fiction and our expectations and stuff like that. So I think you watched the show when it was first on TV. Is that right? I did. So it was very interesting uh, going back to a show that I watched as a 14-year-old when it came out, Um, a 14-year-old who loved Austin. I think I first fell in love with Austin when I was like nine and I went on a family holiday to Bath and first read Pride and Prejudice. Um, My parents named me after two of the sisters in Pride and Prejudice, so I feel like it was pre-ordained. Mind. But oh at the God. same time, I'm like, I know, it's <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting. Um, but now I like go back and it's really uh, interesting to watch something that I felt really spoke to me when I was that, age and I didn't really know anyone else who was really into Austin or like women's history and things like that. Um so now like what is it, 13 years later, re-watching it and having been through kind of the academic system and now have a really good network of people into those kind of things. Yeah, it's been interesting to rewatch. So it was a good gift of a job. (laughs) Yeah, I I didn't watch this when it was first on. I was 13. And actually I'm pretty sure I read Pride and Prejudice for the first time in 2008. But I didn't watch this show. I don't know why. It just didn't just didn't happen because it's exactly the sort of thing that I sort of should have been really into at that age, which meant that watching it now was the first time I'd ever seen it. And so it was a very strange experience because I was sort of culturally aware of it. But, yeah, yeah it, it was not what I expected necessarily. I think... Um, it'd be good to start by kind of talking through what happens in this show, what the sort of overall plot is and who the characters are. So we start with a character called uh, Amanda Price, who is in Modern Hammersmith, which I also find very funny because that's where I went to school at exactly this time. (laughs) Oh, I love that. (laughs) (laughs) So I have a very weird kind of parallel relationship with this film. Um, And she is sort of, Presented as an Austen fan, although it seems that the only thing she reads is Pride and Prejudice, which is interesting. Yes, I think, uh, yeah, it's another case for people who are obsessed with Pride and Prejudice. And then you get fans who like all the novels and things like Mm. that. But it's the I mean, she may do it maybe off screen, but that is her. It's Mr. Darcy. It's Pride and Prejudice. It's Elizabeth Bennet. That is her. um, That is her love. And this, I mean, this film comes at, the series rather comes at a really interesting time because obviously there's the 1995 BBC version of Pride and Prejudice that is still pretty iconic. Um, yes. But there's also the 2005 film, which was very much like in the popular zeitgeist even still in 2008. Oh, completely. And yeah. I guess I didn't think of this, but the um, I watched Lost in Austin with my partner and they pointed out that in this context as well there's all the um Bridget Jones stuff going on that that book comes out in 96 and then the film in 2001 so there's already this sort of cultural trope of the woman who loves Pride and Prejudice. Yes there's a real proliferation of it around like the turn of the 21st century I think um and particularly, and we get this in Lost in Austin, the connection between not only loving Jane Austen and Pride and Prejudice, but loving that 1995 adaptation. Um, it seems it's as like as part of the, like the cult of Austen as the actual novels are. I think it's kind of incredible, actually. Um, yeah, the of a place it holds. It's it's really rare to see a film get that much kind of power within yes. within the sort of yeah, as you say, in the canon alongside the novels. So. Amanda is having a shit time of it with her dirtbag boyfriend (laughs) (laughs) and uh, Elizabeth Bennett sort of appears in her bathroom uh, that apparently there's some kind of door in the wall that means that you can pass between the world of Pride and Prejudice and the modern world and no one's sort of noticed it or found it until this time and what essentially follows is that... Amanda and Elizabeth swap places and so she comes out into the modern world gets a job as a nanny has a great time and Amanda goes back into the world of the book and meets all the characters totally screws up the plot in an interesting way because you never get a sense of whether there are any consequences to that or not which takes this out of the usual sort of time travel meddler genre. Yes, definitely. I think so. Um, yeah, it's very interesting, the kind of moment where she hears the sound in her bathroom just after her boy... Does he try and drunkenly propose to he, her? Like he, he tries just kind to, of- like, drunkenly propose to her with the pull ring of a beer can. Yes, that's it. <laughs> Um, And she's like, I just want to read Pride and Prejudice. I told you not to come over. I've got my glass of red wine. I just want to read it. And then as of almost all her dreams have come true, Elizabeth Bennet pops up and Mm. she's like, oh, you could come through to Longbourn. And um, I think it takes her like half a second to think about it. (laughs) Yeah. And so from that moment on, the bulk of the action takes place in the world of Pride and Prejudice. There's no sense of kind of how the the series world fits in with actual history or other timelines yes. or anything like that. We're very much clearly in the world of the book. And so all of the yes. geographical locations are places that are represented in the book as well. It's um, yes. It's an interesting piece because like, I say this as someone who's really have always adored the time tra- travel genre. I've always oh, okay. been a huge yeah. fan of like a time slip or fall into a book or something like that. And this is a show that has the potential to really explore that and then kind of just opts out, which I find strange considering that Amanda has not only gone back into this book, she's brought her copy of the book with her. So she has this reference point to how fictional it all is, but she doesn't ever really explore the limits of that. Yeah, and that's the. I think that's really interesting it's, because she's in this Regency Pride and Prejudice world, but it does also almost seem ahistorical because, like you say, it, it, if you picture it, it's almost like she is in this bubble that only happens in the book. Um, we have no idea of outside events. Um, we don't really get, I mean, we can probably guess it's supposed to be set in 1813, so it's when the book's published, but we don't really get a sense of specifically when. Um, she has gone back to. Um, mm. They don't really talk about wider world events in it um, at the time. It is just she the preoccupation is with her trying to uh, put back together the story of Pride and Prejudice that she has inadvertently, just by landing in it, messed up. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I think we that's also, really interesting. I mean, the geography of the book world is very, very strange because everyone seems to be jumping yes. from place to place with no travel time, which... Yeah really confused yeah. me because obviously that's a huge part of of the book and of this kind of history is that the distances that you have to go between places like Longbourn is so far away from Rosings from Pemberley all yes. of that stuff and yet everyone's just kind of zipping around like it's no big deal I, you're so right that's the thing like when um, Mr Darcy says oh please come to Pemberley they I mean they just cut to being there yeah um <laughs> And I, it's um, in the book you get all this when she goes with her um aunt and uncle Gardner there. You have like a couple of days worth of travel because that's what it would have been. They would have been stopping. Um, I think uh the Austin scholar La Lafay did a really great um chapter in one of her books where she kind of visualised what a lot of the places looked like, but also the distances um it would have taken and to go between them and obviously it's a lot further even though travel had really improved in the mm-hmm. latter half of the 18th century um but they would not have gone uh, as quickly as it appears in <laughs> lost in austin we just sit between places um as if we've literally just popped on the motorway in a car it's yeah, uh, crazy <laughs> yeah completely <laughs> um so Right from the off, she starts to fuck with the plot of the book and everything very quickly goes wrong. She has with her somehow a squeezy tube of lip gloss, among other things, which makes a (laughs) couple of strategic appearances whenever she's getting ready for anything. And she goes to the dance and she dances with Darcy. And from that moment on, we have the sort of will-they-won't-they simmering romance kind of thing that the book is sort of establishing between Darcy and Lizzie that they have this tension in their relationship except the problem is that Amanda is very boring (laughs) and just I I found her very unsympathetic as a character I don't know how you felt about her but yeah yeah I think she's um she's very interesting because also I don't really think we get to know her as a person because her whole thing through the series is that she is trying to get Elizabeth back and she's trying to fix them up and every time she speaks to Darcy she keeps saying oh you need to be with Elizabeth and he's like who, who is that? who is Elizabeth um, <laughs> yeah and um, and even when she becomes friends with Jane Bennett um even Jane says oh you say the strangest things because she keeps talking oh he uh, oh it's the Darcy that's who we want to see and like he's for Lizzie and all this kind of thing like she never really develops her own character because she's so desperate to make sure she doesn't mess up what is supposed to happen because she's worried about those consequences because it's a book she loves so much yeah and i think that's something that we never we never sort of see her running into those consequences like the moment she arrives i think you could have this revelation that things are changing and she's going to mess with the plot and even as she's desperate to get everyone in their right places and make sure that for example um jane and bingley end up together she's simultaneously determined to keep lydia and wickham apart and so the show does this very strange thing where it puts different weight on her actions depending on the sort of moral good or bad implications of them which i don't know i found very strange we never have we never have the feeling that what she's doing could actually have consequences. Yes. It's like when they reach the end of the the natural end of the book, that's when it will all cut off. Um, Yeah. Because, because we are just in this book world. We're not in like a historical Regency world. Um, So yeah, I think it's really interesting as you say that she's constantly trying to warn Lydia away from Wickham, um, but she's desperate to try and make sure she doesn't take Elizabeth's place too much. And that the wrong marriages don't happen. Um, Yet she's trying to block one of the significant plot points from happening. Right. And obviously in doing so, like, completely ruins things for everyone. And you end up with... Jane and Collins briefly getting married. Charlotte gets completely screwed over. Everything just goes horribly wrong. Should we talk a little bit about Charlotte and what happens to her character? Yes, because um, that's the one thing I kind of forgot about, actually, because Charlotte's really important in Pride and Prejudice. I think she's really interesting because she's slightly older um, and she's really worried about her prospects. um, Mm. And so she marries Mr. Collins. But then... In the show, um, she develops a very kind of fractious relationship with Amanda. I think it stems from a misunderstanding that... Uh, Lizzie tells um, Amanda that about uh, she's talked to somebody called Lady Ambrosia and Amanda doesn't realise that's the family pig so when she's like confronted by Charlotte in a church service and she doesn't know what to say she's like oh yeah um, Lizzie told me and Lady Ambrosia and Charlotte thinks she's making fun of her Um, and after that they never quite gel um, mm-hmm. which I think is really interesting um, but yeah she decides to because of all the things messing about and there's that horrible moment where Amanda drags her out and it's like Collins desperately wants to marry you um, and uh, she she basically insinuates that um, she'll be a great wife um, in terms of in sexually and then Charlotte gets drastically upset and decides she's going to be a missionary in Africa and then just mm-hmm. disappears. Um, It's very, very divergent from the plot. Yeah, and Charlotte in the book is a very interesting character because she is sort of the pragmatist, right? She's the one who's making the sensible choices and understands the limits of her world, you know. Whereas Jane and Lizzie are sort of pretty enough and smart enough to dream above their station and have these exciting opportunities, Charlotte is older, she's less sort of socially positioned and she's making the best of the situation that she has and and her choice to marry collins is very clearly presented as her only option and so to have her treated like this was was very strange and honestly kind of upsetting but she's this really interesting character that in many ways is almost a stand-in for many of the people that would have been reading this book i think yeah i i think you're right and i I think that's the thing we we barely get to know her as a character she only pops up every so often um in the show and because of that fractious relationship with Amanda Mm. um she's almost a bit of a nuisance whenever she does pop up um whereas actually we know that in the book she's one of Lizzie's closest friends and obviously uh she and you're right she serves as this kind of sensible character who speaks very rationally even though Elizabeth Bennet thinks that she's very sensible Mm. um, and she's kind of the voice of reason in her family. Charlotte's even more so, and I think that kind of highlights where Lizzie can afford to go above her station. Um, Yet here, we barely get to know her. Um, She kind of zips in and out of the plot um, and then makes this very kind of rapid exit um, that's actually really sad. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's where the biggest issue that I have with this show is that by taking Amanda as the main character, by having everything filtered through Amanda, we lose all of the really sharp, really smart social commentary that's in the original text. We lose the kind of insight and wit that Austen has onto the society around her. And, And we don't have the same kind of sparky characters. We don't have the same sort of real analysis of the situations that they find them in. And themselves in and and that's more than a little bit disappointing I think it's a book it's a show rather that's attempting to pay tribute to this book by gutting the book of its protagonist (laughs) and taking out all of the things that make the book so smart and interesting yeah I think so and I think that's always been my argument for Pride and Prejudice is that I think it's really smart and interesting. Whenever anyone's kind of derides it, it's just a book about love and marriage. um mm. I think I think it's Emily Brand, the 18th century historian. She shared this one star review that she saw on Amazon, <laughs> and it was I wrote it down because it just amuses me. It popped up again in like my timeline this morning, so it was very timely. Um, and somebody had written, "It's just a bunch of people going to each other's houses," and I'm, <laughs> which is it's just so. Brilliant in itself as like an assessment of pride and prejudice. But <laughs> I've always been very like, it's no, it's really sharp and witty. There's so much social commentary, there's so much we can unpick um from what Austin's writing in this novel, and it's really cleverly done. Um and when I first watched it, I was I su- found it super dreamy. I was like, oh yeah, like that's what would happen if I popped into the book, kind of thing. And now as I'm older watching it, I'm like, yeah, like there's still elements of it I enjoy. But like you say, they're taking that sharpness and that wit Mm. of Austen out of it. And instead, it's a lot of social blunder um, and kind of messing around with the plot. Um, And because we don't get to know Amanda as a heroine in her own right, because she's just trying to fix or pull apart things, we don't get that kind of Lizzie Bennet character um, that drives the novel. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is a nice segue into talking about the sort of Austen industry, um, yes. I referred to it in conversation recently as the uh, Regency Romance Industrial Complex, which <laughs> is maybe like a slightly clunky way of phrasing it, but it is this real specific sort of genre. And yeah, let's get into how this show fits within that. It takes place obviously in 2008, so we have the context of the 1995 Pride and Prejudice. We've also got the context of the 2005 film. And yeah. there's something going on here in terms of how Pride and Prejudice, specifically Austen and the other early 19th century sort of romance novelists more broadly, have become a pop culture phenomenon, I think. Yes. Um, I read something really interesting when I was kind of looking through my notes for this. And um, I think it's a, a lady called Sarah Parry who wrote an article about kind of the effect of these adaptations on country houses um, that have been used in them. And she referred to it as Jane Austen, the brand. And I was like, it's so interesting. It's so accurate. Like I think of all the the things that I own that uh <laughs> that kind of that I uh, I've got Jane Austen like uh, uh my friend Nicole bought me a Jane Austen action figure for my birthday oh my which, god like, sits on my dad <laughs> yeah I like, love it um and then I've got like Jane Austen tea towels a cake slice like uh you know prints on the wall and stuff like that mm. and um, and it's so easy to like you just search on Etsy or whatever um like the Jane Austen center in Bath and also mm. um at the House Museum at Chawton they have got such a wider range of things that you can buy that are connected to Austin um, and I just think it's so interesting because you do have other writers that have this kind of interest in them but for some reason Austin is a real kind of cult of people who are interested in it. And I'm really interested in how that works, but also I'm very aware that I'm one of the people who is in that at the same time. Um, Which is an interesting divide. (laughs) I guess, I mean, thinking about it, really the only people that I can think of that kind of come close to this level of frenzy and obsession are the Brontes. And you have a very similar kind of cult around them and their work. But again, I think a lot of that comes down to the way that those books have been interpreted as romances rather than social commentary, historical novels, any of that sort of thing. They've very much been diluted down to the love story at the centre, which, you know, you see something very similar happening with the fascination around Pride and Prejudice as you do with, for example, Jane Eyre, where it stops being about the kind of horrible complex social world in which these characters live and starts becoming about the idea of your one true love yeah, completely. And it's, again, it's that falling in love with a fictional character. Um, right. You get your Mr Darcy or your Mr Rochester and there's all those, I mean, you can sit for hours on places like BuzzFeed doing quizzes like which Jane Austen hero is uh, your tr- one true literary <laughs> love and things like that, um, which always uh, entertain me when I can't sleep and things like that. But um, mm-hmm. I think it's uh, the, almost the reception of Jane Austen that's kind of evolved how she uh how we see her and how we read mm. the novels as well um devoni lusa who's um, an austin academic and she's written this great book called the making of jane Austen." Mm. and the first line is she was not born but rather became jane Austen." and i that's, think that's so yeah. true um because the way yeah. that um her image and the way her novels have been dealt with and read um throughout the intervening two centuries of them being published has such a bearing on how we now understand and read her and receive her work um it it kind of changes with every single adaptation or republication things like that it's so interesting yeah definitely i guess there's something there's something going on with that in lost in austin particularly in the sense that you have this character who in the form of amanda who's become so obsessed with this world that she's literally fallen into it and The show is clunky in the way that it represents that, but it's a pretty good metaphor for how this sort of industry circulates, particularly around Pride and Prejudice. This idea that you can just become so swept up in it that it does sort of take over your life. Yeah, I mean, because what is it, the opening lines, I think I wrote them down because, yeah, it is a truth genuinely acknowledged that we all want to escape. And then she goes on to say, it's become a place I know so intimately I can see it and touch it which foreshadows mm. the fact she is going to be able to see and touch it um, yeah. within a few minutes when Elizabeth Bennet turns up in her bathroom. Um, but it is that sense that you can know it so well and have read it so many times that it does feel real to you, um, which I think is such a, a symptom of kind of the the Janeite culture, as right. um, they call it. I think, And I think the term Janeite has been around... Um, for a long, long time. I think I wrote down when it was, I think it's like 1894 that the Mm -hmm. term was first coined, which you think in terms of assessing fan culture, um, that's quite a long time ago. Um, And then Rudyard Kipling picked it up um, with a short story called The Janeites and then it's kind of been ingrained um, in how people refer to themselves. But I think uh, that awareness of people being obsessed with Austen for so long... um, and her novels is is kind of crazy actually to think that that's been in circulation for so long definitely it's funny i was reading i'm i really love georgette hyatt and i think she's a great example of this sort of regency romance genre that keeps some of the kind of smartness and social commentary that you have in a writer like austin but it takes it into a more sort of modern conventional romance genre and it was in i think I think regency buck there's a reference to one of the characters going to a lending library and picking up this new book that's just come in and they read a couple of Amazing. lines of sense and sensibility and say like oh how funny these quaint little people with their rural lives <laughs> yes. and it's it's a very funny little moment that reminds you that these writers had a contemporary audience as well yes. they existed yes. within their own time within their own context obviously Hayer is writing in the 20th century about this same kind of fantasy historical past but she's combining the modern kind of contemporary audience with this historical imagination and and it's done in a really interesting way that i think we can see happening in all of these adaptations they tell us more about the time that made them than the actual time i think you're so right with that i think um every adaptation kind of responds to the time um I recently for the first time watched the 1940 MGM Pride and Prejudice um with Laurence Olivier and Greer Garson and obviously that's uh I mean Europe and the whole whole world is at war Mm. um and it's a very kind of um nostalgic uh, escapers I really enjoyed it actually considering that um normally the big thing is that they're wearing Victorian hoop skirts and obviously it's a Regency uh, (laughs) novel and I mean and which you know I was surprised I thought I'd be a purist about it and actually I didn't hate it I thought it it was fun like it worked Mm -hmm. um but also the plot is kind of um shortened and expanded in different places so you get the Mm. first proposal which is kind of the halfway point of the book it happens with about half an hour of the film left to go um so it all wraps up very quickly and lady catherine de burr becomes this kind of fairy tale creature that puts lizzie and darcy together rather than trying to tear them apart it was very (laughs) interesting um but i think it's very reflective of the what uh, what kind of the adaptation that people wanted at that time um and, you know, it made Darcy very human and a man with feelings and things like that. And very, I mean, I think uh, Colin Firth, when he was asked to play Darcy, he referred to Laurence Olivier's portrayal and was like, and, and I can't remember the exact quote from him, but he said something like, oh, um, but Olivier is so sexy. And he he kind of really embodies this new Darcy. How am I supposed oh. to live up to it? And now, obviously... Colin Firth is always heralded as the Mr Darcy like it's his defining role even though it's it's past 25 years later yeah definitely I think that's so fascinating because one of the things that really stood out to me watching Lost in Austin is the way that it's a 2000s period piece now um in things like the squeezy lip gloss tube which made me absolutely cackle (laughs) when it first appeared on screen um I think Amanda's got a flip phone you know it's just she's got this kind of dead square dead straight haircut which feels very 2008 to me yeah i (laughs)
1: was gonna
0: say it gave me real flashbacks that fringe (laughs) yeah and she's got basically blue eyeshadow on in every scene which it got to the point where i was basically like keeping a tally of every time she'd show up with different weird eye makeup on despite the fact that she's complaining about the fact that she doesn't have access to a toothbrush she's somehow reapplying her blue eyeshadow every time it's amazing and isn't it funny how it's become nostalgic for us uh like 14 15 uh like 13 years later sorry yeah um that we see things about that we remember in it but it's it's not just nostalgic for the pride and prejudice and the regency period but it's nostalgic for things we remember from being well for me and you being teenagers Mm, um because like her outfit I was like oh yeah like that would have been like the coolest outfit when she's got that like purple drapey top and the leather jacket and the skinny jeans (laughs) with the really dead straight hair I was like that's what I would have worn and and you know that was it just it like took me back to being that age and just being like oh yeah yeah that was the height of fashion and sophistication and yeah it's interesting (laughs) yeah it's so funny and especially when we see the kind of modern Lizzie as well who is actually played in a very funny quite light-hearted way by Gemma Arterton um and she's gone through to the modern era and got herself this god-awful pixie cut (laughs) and and she's wearing like layered t-shirts and converse and stuff and it's so 2000s in this really hilarious way yeah, it's, it is. You're so right that the way she kind of transforms, because we obviously we see her at the very beginning and then we mm. see her in the very final episode. There's such a transformation with her and she talks about that she's now macrobiotic <laughs> and um, that her employers are really aware of their carbon footprint and things like that. Um, and it is like it's just so interesting to see that shift with her. Um, and how she's changed when she's been put in the modern world. Yeah, and it's almost... I, I was kind of sad that we didn't see more of her, because there's something really interesting in the character of Elizabeth Bennet and the way that she has become this sort of... In, in the way that so many of these literary characters do, she's been treated as a sort of proto-feminist heroine. and Yes. That's a label that gets thrown around a lot and seems to essentially apply to any female character that's ever shown to have an opinion. But with Elizabeth Bennet, it's a particularly strong kind of trope, the idea that she's sharp and she's witty and she's cool. And so to then put her in the modern day and show her becoming this kind of cool girl is really interesting. Um, Because, yeah, the, the show gives this impression that she's somehow been born out of time, whereas... One of the things that stood out to me watching it is that in the book, there's more this sense that Lizzie's almost, if anything, born out of class. That if she was of a higher social status, she'd be able to get away with being opinionated and sharp and things like that. Even if she was lower social status, she wouldn't have access to education in the same way, but there would be different pressures and expectations placed on her. But because of the very specific, narrow little band in which she lives, she is required to meet certain social expectations that she is therefore chafing against. Yeah, I think it's so... Interesting. I think you're right that because I think she repeatedly refers to, well, Amanda, I've been born out of time and uh, and things like this, which again is interesting when we, we think of how we've been discussing it as almost ahistorical, yeah. Um, in the way it treats the time period. Um, but yeah, her being born out of class is so interesting and something she's repeatedly reminded of by uh, the Bingley sisters, who constantly in the novel deride her and her sister for having relations that live in the unfashionable part of London. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and having no connections, and even Mr Darcy says this, he's like, oh, they'll never make great marriage prospects, because of who their relations are, um, at the end, you get Lady Catherine de Burr saying, um, you can't marry him, like other shades of Pemberley to be thus polluted, um, <laughs> which I, I love that line, it's one of my favourites so in the book, um, <laughs> and it's so good, um, and then she stands up to her and she says, well, um, I'm the daughter of a gentleman, he is a gentleman, so far we are equal, and actually what Austen does is she shows that it's not um it's not class that determines that the fact that lizzie and darcy are a really good equal partnership it's the way they behave and evolve throughout mm-hmm. the novel mm-hmm. which i think is really interesting i also think Um, The presentation of Lizzie Bennet in a modern period in Lost in Austin is so different to, say, how Bridget Jones, who's supposedly the Elizabeth Bennet, in that kind of uh, loose adaptation, they're very different. She's not presented as this cool girl. She's presented as somebody who's very insecure, um, who's very kind of browbeaten by her mother. Um, and things like that and very unsatisfied with her life. And I know it's a lot more of a looser um, telling of Pride and Prejudice but it's very different and they're only uh, seven years apart in when Mm. they were released so I just think that's um, yeah again it's just really interesting the different adaptations of the same character. Yeah it's funny to see this representation of Lizzie very much as a cool girl compared to as you're saying, the character of Bridget Jones, but also compared to Amanda, who seems to not have yes. her life together and who is in this very dead-end relationship, doesn't like her job, is so frustrated yeah. with her life that she's willing to throw it all away for yes. this particular fantasy. Which, uh, Completely. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, we joked about it earlier, but it literally takes her half a second to walk yeah. through the door into the attic at Longbourn. And you really think, oh... Actually, that's a big decision. Um, you know, she's got, she gets on really well with her flatmate, Piranha. Mm-hmm. Um, I wish we saw more of her and her interaction with Lizzie, actually, because I really liked her. As she a seems great. She seems so yeah. much fun. Uh, she, yeah, she did. She just seemed really fun. And yeah, just when she was on screen, she was great. Um, and so she's got this. She's got, she does have a boyfriend. We do meet her mother. Um, and so, and even though her interaction with her mother's, you know, kind of, uh, I think her mother's basic saying that she's got too many romantic notions about life um, and things like that, um, which I think is kind of a classic trope that they've played yeah. in there, um, which works, to be fair. Um, but she, So she does have this life and she has a job, but she obviously hates it because she just steps through and doesn't really think about it. Um, mm. And actually the thought that she was like, oh, you know what? Um, I'm just going to step through this door. And that that kind of as an impulsive nature would have been kind of it's quite interesting because she does do some things that are quite impulsive, like mm-hmm. when she's a bit drunk at the ball after she's tried to like get Bingley and Jane together and it's not really working and she kisses Bingley outside then realises what she's done and it's kind of crazy. And um, <laughs> I think that is an interesting side of her character, that impulsive Definitely. nature. Because it is so incongruous with that Regency world of everything has to be super thought out um, because the only impulsive character we really get in Pride and Prejudice is Lydia and we all see how that ends up.
1: Absolutely. Um, Yeah.
0: Yeah. I think there's something in the sense as well that Lizzie is running towards something, right? She wants to go through this door because she wants to be in a new world with more opportunities. And for whatever reason, she's realized that she can get that immediately by stepping through the attic. Like, she doesn't know where she's going, but she knows it will be better. Whereas for Amanda, she's running away from things as well. But it's very much a retreat into fantasy. It's not moving towards an opportunity. And like at the end of the day this is a fun little comedy series that was created to be light and entertaining but i think it does say something about the way that these characters have entered into our popular imagination that we assume that lizzie bennett would always be moving towards the next thing and the most exciting thing yeah um completely i mean you only have to look at austin land like that's very similar in the kind of in the I mean not that there's a time slip but it's a uh, I think that's actually very clever Austin Land and how it sets up there's almost this Jane Austen theme park where you go to a country house and <laughs> there's none of the existing characters from any of her novels they're all kind of plays on that mm. um but again it picks apart this woman um this young woman who is unmarried who wants to kind of try out austin for a time Mm -hmm. um and ultimately she decides she's better off in the modern world um, and she picks it apart and she learns a lot about herself in the process um but again it's that uh that desire to have a part of that culture and experience that kind of romanticized notion of um, austin's world and it is uh, austin's world as people perceive it as being really romantic definitely i mean this is something that my partner pointed out while we were watching the show which is that really, this is what reenactment societies are for. Yes, <laughs> like, yes. there are plenty of very healthy ways that she could get this fix and oh, get it out of her system. <laughs> Completely. I mean, I, I was like, Amanda, please go to the Jane Austen Festival in Bath where yeah. you can dress up in Regency clothes for two weeks. I, that is on my bucket list to, to do. <laughs> like, it looks so fun. And there's so many things you can do, like, like societies and stuff that like kind of really indulge and like learn about these things you you don't have to jump straight into the novel and abandon your whole life to do it right exactly and you know I'm sure you could make some great friends and have a lovely time (laughs) (laughs) and maybe you could find a better boyfriend who appreciates why you're obsessed with this kind of romantic past instead of just being pretty gross like you have better options here because this is something that always frustrates me about time travel narratives, as much as I adore them, there's always got to be this dilemma of what are you giving up? And I think that's the most interesting and important source of tension in most of these types of stories, but it's not something we see at all coming from Amanda, except in the sense that she doesn't want anyone to change her hair, she wants to keep her modern haircut. Yes. And like, actually, the only reason she goes back, even though she keeps insisting that Elizabeth at some point will come for Darcy, the Mm. only reason she goes back is because of that horrible accident where... Bingley actually ends up running off with Lydia because he's so depressed because he let Jane slip through his fingers and she's now married (laughs) very unhappily to Collins. And Lydia's very bored. She doesn't get any attention and things like that. So they run off. They don't have an affair. They literally just kind of, I think they just get drunk and like he says they philosophise about life or whatever. And then, so Mr. Bennett comes running after them and they've actually gone to the early 19th century version of Hammersmith because obviously (laughs) they've heard Amanda talk about it so much. They're like, oh, it's so great. We must go. Um, which I did kind of love as a little nod to the parallels between time um Mm -hmm. but Mr Bennett gets into a fight with Mr Bingley he hits his head and that's what causes Amanda to say I need to go back and get her like I need to and it's not nothing to do with um her personal journey it's Mm -hmm. to do with making sure that Lizzie can be with her dad when the potential is he could pass away um Which I think is so interesting. Like you say, she never at one point thinks, I'm giving stuff up to be here. It's just, she wants to be there. And actually, when I was watching it at 14, I was thinking about, would I... Like would I stay? Like if that was me, and I was like, yeah, definitely, I would stay with Mister Darcy. And as I'm older now, I'm like, well, I still love Mister Darcy and Elizabeth Bennet, but I think I would have liked the ending to for her to find kind of a parallel happy ending, but in her own time. Yeah. Um, something like that. Um, which Completely. you never know. That could be an interesting like uh, new drama or something. Yeah, but, and that would um, be a much yeah. more interesting kind of variant on on the outcome. I mean, I. <laughs> <laughs> my approach to all of these things is that I am incredibly short-sighted and I rely re- rely on medication to function as a person. And therefore, yes. I do not want to go and live in any time other than my own because it just it just wouldn't work. <laughs> I wouldn't be able to yeah. see anything, and I'd be really <laughs> unwell. <laughs> And I think that's something that actually was really clever and quite subtle about the series, was, like you said, about her getting the lip gloss out every so often. Um, Like, Mr. Bingley's like, oh, she's got these paracetamols um, that bring Jane's fever down. And then uh, Lizzie comes back and she's got the antiseptic to clean Mr. Bennet's head. And it's something that like they think that Jane could die of this cold Mm. um, when actually with modern medicine that we can just pick up in the pharmacy. um, It's it's not so much of an issue. Um, And I do think that's really clever ways that they point out, they do point out that Amanda has romanticised it, um, this world that she's stepping into. And that's something that's very subtle, but I think it's very well done. Mm. I think that comes across particularly strongly in the final episode, which is where we see, amanda moving between the worlds again and trying to decide where she wants to be and one of the ways that that happens is that she attempts to persuade piranha to come through to Longbourn with her even if it's only for a moment just to see it and experience it and piranha points out that she's black and therefore her experience of this world would be completely different to amanda's and the show sort of plays it off as a bit of a joke Uh, it doesn't take it seriously Amanda certainly doesn't take it seriously she immediately starts talking about like just for five minutes it'll be fine and yes there's something yeah there's something there I think yeah and I'm glad they did at least touch on that um and they did kind of point out that this is this is different and this is another part of this world that she's romanticized um but at the same time like you say it gets played off as a joke it's like the the outward racism on mm. the bus when Mr Darcy gets on the bus um and she's she apologizes for what he says um and she's like oh he's got Tourette's um, which, which is she's again- a bit of a Pretty it's gross. not a very, yeah, it's pretty gross as an explanation to be honest and um, something that isn't funny. Mm-hmm. Um, but then she turns to Darcy and says, oh, people here tend not to speak on the bus. And it's supposed to be this comic moment where she's leading him in modern life just to shut him up because he's made this racist comment mm-hmm. um, because his world, it's racist treated very differently. Um, but again, it's a flash in the pan moment that actually... It's something very weighty and very interesting, very topical right now, as it should be, um, that gets brushed aside quite quickly. And you also, you definitely get the sense that if they were back in the book world and Darcy said something racist, like, would she comment on that? Would she she feel that that was her place to say anything? Would she just brush it under the rug because it's a different time? Like... Amanda accidentally becomes the stand-in for a very particular kind of white nostalgia, I think. That is a huge part of the fields that we both work in, you know, as people that work on histories of museums and collections, and particularly country houses. There's this strong trend amongst academics even, and researchers even, of focusing only on the kind of glossy bits Yes, um, and I think, particularly in the last couple of years, there have been so many really interesting research projects, like the legacies of the British British slave ownership project, Karim Fowler's great work on colonial countryside, mm. that really, um, that, and I think the pro- a lot of people think, oh, like we cannot enjoy country houses for being these beautiful, glossy, artistic places. You can, but you do have to realise that that is not only what they are and not yeah. only what they stand for um which is why I always think I would like more adaptations of Mansfield Park because yeah. I think I think that is um something that's really interesting and Corinne Fowler's written a great um article actually about um Edward Said's reading of Jane Austen Empire mm. and about how um we actually see uh, Empire in Mansfield Park which is super interesting um and again, that I mean, the novel is named after a country house yeah. and um, it, it, you show uh, how important I think country house nostalgia is to the Austin brand, so to speak. Mm-hmm. I mean, even in terms of thinking about the houses that get included in adaptations, like it is a fantastic opportunity for these museums and historic houses because not only do they get paid for being used, they also then get the international recognition mm-hmm. um, as a location um these kind of I think Paula Byrne has referred to it as big house syndrome and these like yeah. heritage dramatizations yeah. which I think is so true I mean we get um Harwood House uh, in Yorkshire as Pemberley in Lost in Austin um we always get the debate between Chatsworth as Pemberley because supposedly that is what Jane Austen saw and it was used in the 2005 mm-hmm. film or Lyme Park um in the 1995 film what um because of lockdown in the past year I've been like there's been some very interesting like fun news stories that I've tried to like tap into rather than looking at some of the more horrible things happening in the world um and one of my favorite things that happened uh, this last year is that to celebrate the 25 years of the 1995 series was that um Cake decorator Michelle Wibowo um, made a life-size Colin Firth cake oh that went God. to Lime Park. <laughs> um, UK TV commissioned it. And oh, I loved it. Fuck? I was like, it's a really fun, like, it's, it's crazy. It's absolutely yeah. wild. Actually, it was super impressive, her, yeah, um, I'm sure. her decoration skills. But, um, it, and it follows, I think, in uh, 2013, there was a massive statue of Colin Firth. It went into the Serpentine, then it went into the lake at Lime Park. And it shows you like and Lyme Park's one of my favorite country houses I think it's really interesting the story there it's got beautiful grounds but I think it begs this uh, fundamental question of when we visit somewhere like that do we feel like we've visited Pemberley or do we feel like we've visited Lyme Park as the yeah. home of the Lee family for the last 600 years yeah. um I had an experience once at Sudbury Hall in Derbyshire, which was used as the interiors to the 1995 Pemberley. Uh Um, And it's one of the closest um, country houses to where I grew up, so I've been a lot. I remember chatting to a room guide in the Long Gallery once, and there's this great scene of Colin Firth at night walking along with a candle um with his dogs next to him and also it's where elizabeth bennett sees his portrait um Mm. which is one of my favorite moments in the novel um and he said he'd had a group of women come and visit and what they'd wanted to know when he asked if they had any questions was, where did colin firth walk oh my god um which is so interesting in itself as and again it's like are we visiting Sudbury Hall or are we visiting Pemberley um what histories are we going to receive um and visitor numbers skyrocket I think at Lyme um they tripled before and after the um adaptation was released which is incredible yeah no that is wild Um, yeah it is that's huge yeah I mean, I think it's also worth mentioning, like, the context in which we're recording this episode, because, like, today, supposedly, Oliver Dowden is meeting with people from museums and galleries to bully them into not talking about colonial history. And this is something that, like, I think a lot of fiction and adaptation needs to engage with more directly, especially when we have... We have this industry in the UK in particular, but also elsewhere where we have sort of film location tourism as a particular industry and is a very specific nostalgia focused industry. And those locations have a duty to engage with that. You know, it's understandable that you want to capitalize on the tourist numbers that you can get, but you also have a responsibility to use that in a productive way. Uh, important yeah. way and engage engage with that sort of romanticism and nostalgia critically I think um, yeah. so many of these adaptations like as you say it would be amazing to see more uh, considered more engaging adaptations of Mansfield Park that actually sort of addressed this specifically I was yes. thinking recently as well about adaptations of um, Vanity Fair and how there's a character yeah. in that who is a terrible caricature but in the context of the recent sort of Bridgeton mania represents a rare example of a black character in a historical novel where her race is a huge part of that and it's addressed and it's represented and engaged with so yeah there's a lot going on here and There is. So much to think about. And I'll obviously, as always, put links and references to these things in the notes if you're interested in finding out more. But projects like Colonial Countryside are so important. And I guess personally, I would just like to see film and TV production companies take a bit more responsibility for their role in these particular sort of nostalgia stories. Yeah, I think so, because I think they're putting that pressure on to the house to really capitalize on that nostalgic connection Mm. to austin um so they'll talk about things like the regency and have things like a regency tea party that you can go and do or regency dancing and there is nothing wrong with that but the problem is you also have to take in other sides of the story too and i think it's that nuanced telling of a house's story and actually people being willing to recognize that there are many different sides to history and you cannot be blinkered and only accept one story um because it is then the question of whose histories are we representing and whose are we erasing by being complicit in this you don't get to pick and choose you have to do all of it and like I say this is someone who obviously primarily works on histories of imperialism but like I've worked in historic houses I've worked in heritage sites and it's very deeply entangled within all of these spaces and it's something that often interpretation doesn't address you see this very strong focus on the kind of romance stories and the what we've been referring to i guess for one of a better word as the glossy stuff but yes it frequently doesn't engage with the origins of this No, exactly. And I think, I mean, as somebody who works on elite women and elite Mm. women collecting, um, I think because we tend to think of that as like... um, and you know it is really impressive like it's really interesting when you look at gender in that kind of context particularly when you have this overriding narrative of a lot of country house collections coming from men going on the grand tour and actually it's not fully like that but Mm. and it's too easy to say that as an overriding explanation but at the same time sometimes there is a reluctance to say that women were also complicit in those kind of colonial narratives um and they were like there uh, were women who owned uh, slave plantations and things like that and the wealth they used the wealth to collect and things um and we need to recognize that as well um and not be too scared to actually tell the story as it is um You know, and and make sure that we recognise all the nuance in what actually happened and what built these uh, so-called big houses that tend to get this very nostalgic story around them. Absolutely. And it's worth mentioning before we sort of move on from this, it's specifically focused on the uh, American South, but there's a recent book called They Were Her Property by Stephanie Jones Rogers, which is about white women as slave owners, which is a really important and interesting example of how this conversation is moving and how we're starting to see a kind of greater awareness of we're starting to see a greater awareness of the role that gender plays within these histories of oppression and of violence yes completely i agree which brings us on i guess to some of the minor characters that i wanted to talk about i think the series does some really interesting things with the less uh less developed characters really and gives us space to see them in a very very different way i'm reminded of this because the scenes where we see georgiana she's just sorting beads and shells and it's very much this kind of life of leisure and my partner said something watching it about the amount of wealth and the way that sort of exploitation and subjugation is required to prop up this life of boredom where you don't do anything all day is a really interesting point because then we see Georgiana as this much more savvy character than she is in the book. Oh, completely. I mean, we're given a complete one eighty yeah. on the Wickham Georgiana storyline, and actually, we've kind of had the seed sown for us that Wickham's not as bad as mm. he is in the book because he actually, when Amanda is thrown out of Longbourn after Mrs. Bennett cannot take her presence anymore because she thinks that, I mean, rightfully so, she's sort of messing up um, the marriages of her daughters, um, and she wants them to get married for that stability because the estate's entailed. Mm. Wickham's the one who picks her up, does often helps her um so we're kind of like oh this is different um and then when Georgiana explains that actually she was the one who threw herself at Wickham but -hmm. she knew that her brother would be incensed if he found this out so Wickham took the fall for it um Mm -hmm. and he's actually quite a good guy and I think it's a really interesting um it's really interesting that they played with that and they didn't just go completely canon with all the characters definitely definitely and wickham becomes one of the most interesting characters in the show yes. he's one of the few people that has personality um, yes. but he becomes he becomes this very kind of cunning very smart but also very kind person who yes if amanda was less interested in sort of judging him based on the way that he's represented in the book and you know they could have had a very very different kind of relationship and dynamic i think my favorite of these sort of subverted characters though I think Mrs. Bennet is fantastic in this oh she's so good isn't she she's I think Alex so Kingston good. is so brilliant in this yeah Alex Kingston is an incredible actor and frankly oh, should she play is. Mrs. Bennet in a straight adaptation as well because she's brilliant but she yes. does a really great job of sort of showing the pressure that she's under <laughs> you know it's one of the most yes. sympathetic representations of Mrs. Bennet that I've ever seen and yeah. I don't know. I I almost don't want to give the show too much credit because I think the characterization of Amanda is so terrible and so boring. but at the expense of her personality, we have these minor characters get a lot more room and a lot more yes sympathy and, and compassion and depth than we see in in yes. most adaptations completely and again like watching mrs bennett when i first saw it i was like oh she's really mean like she is she's mean rather than kind of comical as mm-hmm. i kind of read her in the book and actually as i get older and rewatch it i'm like no she's not like she is she has a lot of pressure on her shoulders her husband is like laughably detached she's so um, useless he is and I, oh, the, I love the moment where uh, Lady Catherine comes and she basically tells them the Bennett family aren't good enough and all this and you get Mrs Bennett suddenly rises to the occasion and she, she like yells back at her and tells her to yeah. leave her house and you get Mr Bennett just goes tally-ho wife I'm gonna sleep in our bedroom again tonight <laughs> and like I really, I, I really I, yeah and I, and actually it's a really great moment for yeah. Mrs Bennett because she never gets that no. in the novel um just because the storyline doesn't work that way um and that's lizzie's moment in the novel mm. but because lizzie's not there she takes the mantle and then you get jane standing up to mr collins um mm. he is uh actually he's brilliantly played in this oh because God. he's horrible he so he's, so he's so cringe. he's <laughs> so repulsive and um my one of my favorite things and this is so minor but is that they give his middle name as zeal of the lord and he is like he's laughable in how in yeah how much kind of this caricature of a clergyman he's got all these brothers that lady catherine tries to say that she'll marry the other bennett girls off to and they all have like very overtly biblical names mm. and it's really interesting. Again, thinking to other adaptations because in the nineteen forty one, uh, Mister Collins is a librarian because they didn't want to be seen to be making fun of a clergyman. Oh my um, god! <laughs> which is interesting because actually, yeah. uh, you know, uh, they. He's it, just they're not really making fun of him because of the fact he's a clergyman. They're making fun of kind of how out of touch and how repulsive he actually is yeah, as a character. Absolutely. And he's very slimy. Um, mm-hmm. He's played so well in this. Like, I really love to hate him um mm. and he's and she, she Amanda keeps pointing out that he's gross even Jane knows that he's gross and yeah. <laughs> the moments when they're together you're just like oh no like oh. <laughs> oh horrible I have to say love Lady Catherine in this I think particularly she's her so good, relationship with Amanda is fascinating there's a scene yes. at the end where she talks about how she will arrange to have Jane and Collins's marriage annulled and she is just So smart, and she says that she'll do it because it's amusing to her. And we get this sense of the kind of like canny, strong, determined personality that she has that she's sort of holding this ship together. And yes, you get you finally get an insight into the fact that you know she must have been doing that in the book as well. She must have been running things behind the scenes, but we never really see that because we always see her through Lizzie and she even says to amanda like you should have been my creature like i would have made you incredible and it's it's a great moment because you see finally how smart she is Yes, you do. And you see how powerful she is as a widow who could Mm. own property in her own right. Mm. She's um just basically does things to as she says, to amuse herself. Mm. And it's really interesting because you do really get this sense that she is constantly watching Amanda and she is very interested in her and some of the things she says and she knows out like outright, like isn't there that moment at dinner where she calls her a bum face and she tries to pass it off that it's the name of a card game? And you can just tell that lady Catherine knows that Mm. is not the case but she's so amused by her um and she's so different and then you have that moment where mr bingley as he spends a lot of the series drunk because Mm. he's so sad about the fact he didn't marry jane bennett um that he tries to gamble away his father's watch and Amanda like very graciously kind of bends the rules a bit to Mm. give it back to him and you have this moment where Lady Catherine's like I saw what you did there um I'm pretty impressed actually um she's yeah she's a lot more of an interesting character um in this and she has this great like wry look that she Mm. often gives to the characters where you almost feel like She's assessing them like from a distance a lot of the time which as a woman who is that rich and has that much power, she probably would have been yeah yeah and she has the kind of freedom that a character like Lizzie is dreaming of right she has the ability yes. to move outside of people's expectations and to be direct and confrontational and all of those things and it wasn't it wasn't until this adaptation that I sort of clicked how. The power that she has is exactly the sort of liberty and protection that someone yes. like lizzie even someone like jane would be dreaming of yeah Completely. I mean, you think of the disparity that the wealth um, in the novel, I mean, we we never get told um, how rich Lady Catherine is. We get mm-hmm. told that Mr. Darcy has 10,000 a year, which I think the Telegraph did some calculations on that and it was worth nearly 800,000 um in 2014 um Mm. but because of wealth inequality it was probably more like 12 million today Mm. um but the only thing we actually really get told about lady catherine is that the fireplaces in one of her drawing in the second drawing room i think it is cost 800 pounds (laughs) and it's actually done in quite like a that's quite vulgar that we Mm. know that that she's Mm. bragged about it um which is a whole other kettle of fish about her character but um so we have this clue that she is overwhelmingly wealthy yeah. and so and that brings her that freedom that we've mm-hmm. just been talking about that like you say lizzie and jane can only dream of they have a lot of pressure and expectation on themselves particularly because Longbourn is entailed away mm-hmm. and none of them marry mr collins and secure it um that wealth is such a big thing yeah. um and it comes through in this adaptation too Absolutely. I one of the things that I desperately wanted to talk about is the way that we see Amanda sort of messing with this world because of her fantasies about it. And yes, so much of that comes down to the sort of Austin industry that we've discussed and the way that the way that people are fascinated by these things and obsessed with these things, but it becomes An interesting commentary on the way that we project ourselves into the past, and particularly project ourselves into books, I think. Yes. There's something quite fun in how the series handles that, but I found myself overwhelmingly frustrated because I don't think that Amanda is a sympathetic enough character to carry it off. And a lot of that comes down to the writing, and I think even down to the casting. Um, But... I was interested in hearing from you sort of what you think about the way that we treat characters like Amanda, this sort of nostalgia fantasy that goes on around particularly Pride and Prejudice. Yeah, I mean, I think it's so interesting because it it always comes back to that why do we keep going back to Austen? And... I see I, I like as a, obviously not speaking as an objective historian here I see a lot of like my own love of pride and prejudice in her as a character mm. and I think that's why I've watched it a lot and mm. I've seen it a lot because it kind of really appealed to me as this almost choose your own adventure story Absolutely. but with pride and prejudice <laughs> um my favorite book of all time so what else could you want and I um I think this kind of nostalgic character at the center is so interesting because we get just in a lot of novels and a lot of romances in particular you get these bookish women mm. um who yearn for more because they've they've read um often austin it always seems to come back to them loving austin and classic literature um and the romance of it um and I think that's also why we get so many um, modern retellings, particularly of Pride and Prejudice. That yeah. always seems to be the standout one. Um, I read them all because I find them so interesting. <laughs> um, and. I did, uh, when I was writing some notes last night, I did a quick search on Amazon to and um, just put Pride and Prejudice retelling oh in. And there's so many interesting ones. That like You get teen <laughs> ones set in boarding schools. You get them in different locations around the world. There's one that's in an Amish community. You've obviously got Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. <laughs> there was also, the first book that came up when I searched this was Miss Bennet's Dragon. Um, yeah, so it gives you an insight into kind of how much people play yeah. with these characters. Um and some of I've read some recent ones because I've done quite a bit of work on Pride and Prejudice and its reception recently so it's been a great excuse to have a look mm. at some of these and some of the best ones I think uh, really highlight the relevance of Austen's characters um as not just to white 20-somethings that we have in the original novel that transpose them to other cultures and other ideas. Yeah. Um, my favourite one I read recently was by E.B. Zaboy. it's called Pride and it's actually a young adult one um, it's about an Afro-Latino family in Bushwick, Brooklyn and it talks about gentrification, class um, cultural identity um, and so uh, the kind of the Darcy character moves in across the street and they've gentrified this house so mm. the Bennett family um I think it's the Benitez family in the book um they're really worried about what this means to the neighborhood and the change and they've got this little world that they've known and it's so well done um that sounds really really it is it's I I really hope they adapt that actually um because I think um it's done really creative things with the plot um but also you can recognize the story through the events are recognizable Mm -hmm. um but I think it shows that austin isn't just for um white middle class people um it highlights the relevance um of her and her work to other people and this nostalgia for her that it can be reworked in so many different creative ways Mm. and in some ways the the most creative reworkings of it are the most successful and interesting yeah definitely it's um it's funny because as soon as we finished watching lost in austin my partner and i went and did the same kind of thing and looked up all the yeah (laughs) looked up all the sort of feel less bad oh no 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 (laughs) no. looked up all the like fanfic spin-offs and there are so many about mary which is really funny I think it's really... And, like, I just just read one. Um, it's, like, my favourite. My friends always make fun of me. They're like, if there's a Pride and Prejudice spin-off or sequel, I'll have probably read it. I just <laughs> found them so interesting, yeah. like, what people do with the plot. Yeah. Um, and I just read one about Kitty, and it was called, like, What Kitty Did Next. But I've also downloaded um, one about Mary mm. because i think she's really interesting and actually in lost in austin she's a lot more sympathetic than she's in the book we sweetheart. don't get much of her no. she is she's really sweet and also um i really like the actress who plays her ruby Benton. i think she's mm. she's great in so many other things um mm. but i actually think the sisters are played a lot more sympathetically Definitely. um they're not as kind of um I wouldn't say that austin has made them stereotypes but they do they are kind of thematic yeah. in how we look at the sisters like kit um kitty's kind of the easily led one lydia's the reckless one mary's almost the boring one that tries to overcompensate by being the boring one mm. by um kind of overlearning and mm-hmm. um, jane's the pretty and sweet one and lizzie's the outspoken one um and so i think it's really interesting when people play with that dynamic um particularly with mary because she's a character that i don't think is that likeable no. in pride and prejudice and but in lost in austin they yeah. do a good job with her i mean she's barely in it and so there's a lot of room yeah to kind of imagine who else she might be exactly she literally comes in um does a little bit of kind of moral philosophizing mm-hmm. and is made fun of for it plays the piano a bit badly in front <laughs> of people and then leaves <laughs> so, yeah which is interesting in itself but completely um, yeah completely so I think this is a nice time for me to ask you, since we're on the subject of adaptations and variations, what would your, how would you do this differently? What would you, what would you change? How would you alter sort of Lost in Austin and, and the things that you'd improve about this specific show? But also more generally, like, what would you like to see in terms of these adaptations? So I think it's a big question and something I would love to uh, be in control of in real life, but um, (laughs) I really love like the bare bones of what Lost in Austin's done. Um, And actually i I don't so much like Amanda as a character, but I do like Jemima Rupert, the actress. Mm -hmm. I think she's good. And I think the Darcy casting's actually really good, Mm -hmm. Um, particularly as that's the one that's always the biggest bone of contention in any adaptation. But what I would have really liked was for Amanda to be able to develop as her own character. Mm -hmm. Um, And also, like we said, think a bit more about what the difference is um between her modern world and between this book world um like what is she giving up and also i think i would have liked more about elizabeth bennett in the modern world mm. not just about the novel lines being screwed up and more about kind of piranha and that, that little throwaway comment of oh, i'm not going back because i'm black like mm-hmm. i'd like more about that because i think that's really interesting um and really should be explored more um in period drama um and particularly because it is so throwaway. I mean she says it and then she's like and I also like electricity and chocolate and and loo roll like it's it's a really significant comment Mm. and one that I was glad that they put in but didn't think they did enough with um and I think that's something that I'd really love to see and connected to that as I already mentioned I would really really love another adaptation of Mansfield Park um Mm. I think it I mean I'm hesitant to say it because I think we do over-adapt Austin. Um, I think as much as I adore Austin, I do think there are other novels um, that deserve kind of an adaptation because there's so many that haven't even been adapted once Um, and we get repeated Austin adaptations um i think there's a somebody's writing a script for a new pride and prejudice i think and we have another persuasion coming although i am very interesting in the persuasion i think that could okay, be okay i a good one. yeah i think persuasion is my favorite austin and i think it's been under adapted yes. so i will i will put in one vote for persuasion because i think it is <laughs> yeah. absolutely fantastic and i think anne is a brilliant heroine um but that's like yes. my personal thing and i don't want a production of persuasion at the expense of another more interesting more diverse, more kind of historically literate and critical series or film or something Yeah, exactly Um, uh, because you think even if you wanted to go down the female novelist route from Mm. a similar period I mean, we don't really have Bernie adaptations yeah. we know Austin loved Bernie yeah. um we I mean she mentions Anne Radcliffe in Northanger Abbey do we have any Radcliffe adaptations mm. which would be really fun because they're super gothic and mm. you know it'd be really interesting to see um yeah I think and I was and I also think if people do want to go down this Austin route it would be really interesting to adapt some of these modern retellings that do transpose yeah. Austin values and storylines to other cultures and storylines that show her relevance mm. um, to other audiences and don't constantly privilege this kind of white nostalgic version of history. Yeah, I think that's a really important point as well, is that we can we can tell stories like this and we can tell stories that reference it and allude to it, but we need to be careful and conscious of who we're casting in those stories as well. And, yes. and thinking yes. about how, like, Another Pride and Prejudice adaptation, sure, fine, but are you going to put the same kind of energy and consideration into adapting something else or someone else's interpretation of these kind of stories too? I think Austen gets these adaptations because it's such a quick win. Like, you know you're immediately going to have a huge audience. I think this is the thing um one of Paula Byrne's books about Austen um it's called The Genius of Jane Austen um and it's about her love of theatre and why she's a hit in Hollywood it's such an interesting Mm. read um and it does pinpoint the fact that a lot of people think she's very safe yeah um to adapt and I mean I think that is why you get so many Austen adaptations because people know that they that you know, audiences will go and watch them. Um, Absolutely, I am one of those people who, the second they announce, when I'm like, oh yeah, I'll watch that to critique it or yeah. like whatever or enjoy it. Um, ultimately, it's normally always enjoy it. But um, uh, I think it is. It comes down to that. I mean, and I think the Austin has always been seen as quite safe. Um, I mean. I think post World War One, she uh, reading Austen's novels was prescribed to soldiers who had sh- shell shock. Wow. Um, okay, I didn't. Yeah, know which that. I, that's which, fascinating. Yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah. Um, And I think also in World War Two, um, they did editions of her novels that were pocket sized that soldiers could take oh. with them. Um, and again, it really feeds into this nostalgia we talked about the 1940 yeah. version yeah, um, by MGM um, and Rudyard Kipling's short story about these. Janeites um is really tapping into the fact that these soldiers in world war one um bonded because they all read austin mm-hmm. um and they recognize each other by talking about austin and referring to her characters and things like that and i think um i've written down the quotation from winston churchill because apparently he read pride and prejudice during wartime huh. um, and he said what calm lives they had those people <laughs> And I think it really it's about and I think it always comes back to how we read her and whether we actually understand her context. Um, There's a brilliant book by Helena Kelly called Jane Austen, The Secret Radical, which really pinpoints how Pride and Prejudice in particular, we know it so well, even if we've not read it because of the furore around adapting it. That we don't read it in the way it was probably intended and we miss out on a lot of the really kind of revolutionary aspects of the novel and mm. things like that and we're mistaken a lot of the time in thinking that it's a very safe uh space because yeah. there's a lot of anxieties that play into it and instability um but I do think that safeness um mm. is why she keeps getting pinpointed because it will make money every time yeah, absolutely yeah and you know you know it's an easy win you know that you have this automatic audience everyone goes to these things for comfort because of their consistency because yeah. no matter how many times you adapt it you know you're going to have the same couple of moments and there will be these details that are that are comforting and like i am someone who re-watches and rereads things for this sort of oh. consolation me too me too I mean the slightest kind of bit of sadness I'm always like oh I'm gonna go just rewatch bits of the 1995 version <laughs> because I just find it so content I think I used to watch it as a child and it's just yeah. very it just makes me think of being cozy on a Sunday afternoon yeah. and not worrying about things and stuff like that mm. and I think that's also why I'm so interested in all these modern retellings as much as it's like the creativity of what people can do with the characters it's also I really love that book and i love the story yeah. and i love that people want to play with it so it's yeah. something always fun to go back to absolutely thank you so much for sharing all of your thoughts on this i really appreciate it uh if people want to find you on social media where do they go if they want to find me on social media everything is at history lizzie um and that's how you can find my blog and everything as well which i talk a lot about austin on so uh, very easy <laughs> So that's it for another two weeks. If you want to find me on Twitter, I'm Aa Proctor. If you want to find the show, it's under History Friction. And you can find me on Patreon at Historical Friction. If you're looking to watch things ahead of the next couple of episodes, I can tell you that we're going to be covering Dangerous Beauty, uh, which is a hilarious sex romp set in 16th century Venice. And we're also going to be doing a new Netflix series called La Revolution, which you can watch, which is all about the French Revolution, alt history, fantasy, horror, all that good stuff. Um, And there are a couple of other fun new episodes coming up over the next few weeks. So keep your eye out for those two. I hope I'll see you in two weeks time.